0: churches found that we actually had every resource that we need within our grasp. Princeton Seminary alumni Mark Elsden lives and works at the intersection of money and meaning as an entrepreneur, consultant, pastor, and speaker engaged in faith-based impact investing, church property development, and social enterprise. Mark is co-founder of Rooted Good, which seeks to create more good in the world through social innovation, he is also executive director at Press House on the University of Wisconsin's Madison campus, and he is owner of Elsdon Strategic Consulting. Mark is president of the Board of Directors of Working Capital for Community Needs, an impact investing fund that provides microfinance for the working poor in Latin America. In this episode, distillery co-host Sherry Osting speaks with Mark about his book, We Aren't Broke, Uncovering Hidden Resources for Mission and Ministry. In their conversation, Mark expands on why he insists the church and ministries have more assets than they realize.
1: You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. So Mark, thank you for talking with me today. Good to be here. So we are going to talk about your new book. We aren't broke. Um, and this is a timely conversation. Um, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to open, uh, the same way that you open the book, which is by sharing a little bit about your own story about how this became, uh, such an important topic for you. This, um, kind of blending together of, of resources, mission and ministry.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, I have been a pastor working at Press House, Presbyterian-affiliated campus ministry at the University of Wisconsin in Madison for about 18 years now. It'll be 18 years this summer. Um, My wife, Erica, Lou, and I came to Madison uh, as graduates of Princeton Seminary uh, for our first call, and uh, we basically got started um, rebuilding a campus ministry um, that had been uh, had a, had a really rich and long legacy, uh, but had become dormant, um, with no students involved at all. Um, a building that was falling apart around us, and um, kind of no real viable funding plan for the future. I'm not really sure why we why we took the call to be to be honest. When I said <laughs> sounds it like, like a that. risky decision yeah. for a
1: seminary grad.
2: Yeah. Why did we? Do, I don't know. Anyway, we were naive, um, and uh, I think we were taken by the idea of creating something new. And having space to do that, um, which, uh, which we sort of which we sort of had since there wasn't anything really going on at the time. So we came to to relaunch the ministry and then to figure out um, what the funding model was going to be. And um, one of the ideas that the board that brought us to Press House had on the table was an idea that had been around for actually about eighty years um, since the beginning of the organization, and that was um, to provide student housing. Uh, for University of Wisconsin-Madison students um, on the property that is Press House um, were located right in the heart of the campus, right on the main quad of the campus. Mm-hmm. And so that idea had been around since the 1920s, um, but had been sort of put on hold when the Great Depression um, uh, hit in the 30, early 30s and then kind of was on and off, thought about for many decades, uh, but then became a real viable option to explore again when we arrived in 2004. So we set about rebuilding the ministry at the same time as looking at developing the property um, into a student housing facility. And we can maybe come back around to this, but to keep this part of the story reasonably short, we did in the end build a $17 million um, housing facility that houses about 240 students on the parking lot uh, that is adjacent to um, the historic church building that is Press House. And that was a transformative moment in the history of the organization. And for me, um, in terms of uh, seeing how it, it could impact the lives of students, um, really has been a powerful ministry opportunity, but it has all been, also been financially transformative. And, uh, and it, our budget grew 1500%. Um from the time that we started to to today from about hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to about two point four million dollars a year, and so that has changed everything of course, about uh, what we can do and how we go about doing it mm-hmm. and uh and so over the years, I learned a great deal about property development, about business management um I went back in and got an m b a um well, probably about 15 years after I had finished my MDiv I mm-hmm. uh, went back and did an MBA at the University of Wisconsin Business School. And so started to see how the power of using church-owned real estate and then another element of the story, which we might come back to, is uh, an investment from a church partner, a denominational partner, an impact investment um, from their endowment funds. Those things came together, those sources of capital came together to allow us to do this transformative work um, that both changes the financial situation, but really ultimately is about changing uh, the lives of thousands of students.
1: Well, I think we'll have a chance to visit some of those particular stories, but let's talk about money for a little bit, because there are a lot of people who don't go to seminary wanting to ever think about money or a budget or investments. But that became pretty significant for you pretty early on, it sounds like.
2: Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think that is somewhat common, right to, to sort of feel like we're just we're in this for the ministry, for the relationships uh, to love people. and that's all, obviously is all true. Um, but the reality is that um, any mission oriented activity, whether that's in the church or outside of the church, requires uh, thought uh, about money and about the financial model. Yeah so any any uh mission oriented organization a church or otherwise has to think about um the finances the the money side of what they do um there has to be a sustainable viable financial model for any meaningful activity to go on and to and to work sort of over the over the medium or long term and so um yeah i found that thinking about the role money plays and aligning money with mission has been really important to actually what has led to the success of the ministry. Um, so they're not separate things. They're tied in together. Um, and, um, the way money is utilized and put to work in the world. And by money, I I mean also property investment money. Um, the way that, that, that is put to work in the world can really, well, it always has an impact hmm. actually. Um, the question is, is it a positive impact or is it a negative impact? I don't really believe there's such a thing as neutral with uh, with regard to the use of money. That's always either doing something positive in the world or doing something harmful.
1: Yeah, let's tease that out a little bit more. You make a pretty bold claim that our money or our assets are always at work. So talk about that maybe give a few examples of what you yeah. mean by that.
2: Well, so, I mean, unless you put, literally you put your money under your mattress, um, as soon as it's in the financial system at all, even if it's just in a bank account, in a savings account or checking account, that money is out in the world at work. So the bank that's holding that money is not actually holding it. It's not sitting in a vault somewhere. They're lending it out. They're investing it. So our all of our money... Um, is at play in the system so to speak when we're spending it when we're earning it when we're saving it and uh um the impact that it has sometimes we don't very often we don't know actually what that impact is but it's always having an impact every second of of the day Mm -hmm. so just as an example we traditionally invest um our money and my i mean we i mean myself as well people as well as institutions, um, we invest our money often in the stock market, for example. There's been a lot of talk in the last few weeks about the stock market. It's been all over the place mm-hmm. um, because of inflation and then because of um, what's happening in Ukraine and so on and so forth. And so there's lots of talk about it right now, but but that's where most of our money ends up um, in some form or another. And then <clears throat> what's happening there is that money is being invested in uh, companies, mostly large multinational companies like Facebook and Google, um, Apple alphabet, uh, which is Google, um, and Amazon and places like that to allow those companies to grow their business. So they take investment from all of us in the form of, uh, shares that are purchased and then they use that money to grow their business and then they provide a return on that investment back to us and that's how we make some money with our money but it's it's at work it's at play in the world um one way or the other
1: you you wrote the line um the vast majority uh, speaking of money, spend their nights with Mark Zuckerberg and their days with Jeff Bezos. I thought that was a provocative way of putting it.
2: Right. So, you know, as a Presbyterian, I'm always interested in where Presbyterian money is, and but mm-hmm. I think this is widely shared across denominations. But the Presbyterian Foundation, for example, it, the largest holdings of its core funds are Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, and Facebook. Um, those are the largest holdings. And those have often been considered clean tech stocks, so versus investments in tobacco, which have been screened out for many, many years, or investments in weapons, um, which has been have been screened out for quite a long time in in church funds. And those are good screens. So I'm glad we're not invested in those. But as a lot of us saw in the fall, Facebook's own employees admit that Instagram, which is a Facebook product, is intentionally designed to be addictive to teenagers and for many teenagers i have one so i know Mm. this firsthand i have two actually um for many teenagers instagram is a very negative experience for them so uh facebook is creating an intentionally addictive product that is negative for many teenagers when we invest in facebook we are benefiting financially from the pain of those teenagers that are addicted to that product.
1: Yeah, that's really significant. Um, and to think of all the other financial products that are in these index funds that have- Correct. We don't even have a clue what our money's invested in. For example, a lot of my own retirement savings is in just a target date retirement fund.
2: Right, which would be in, it will be in companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it will shift from stocks to bonds over time. That's what those target date funds are doing.
1: Um, But but their primary driver of course is the highest return possible.
2: Correct. That is the usual approach we take, right? How do we get the most money from our money at the lowest risk?
1: So what's an alternative? I sent, I, it's easy for me to see as you explain it, why that leads us to a problematic place as people of faith.
2: Yeah, I think for me, the question is, so that's kind of this principle of the highest and best use of capital mm-hmm. is to find where it is most um, going to give you the highest return for the lowest risk. That's, that's I mean, it makes sense from a financial perspective, but from a theological, ethical perspective, why? Why, why is that the way we should be using our money? Um, I really struggle with that idea because uh, I'm not convinced <laughs> that that's the way God intends us to handle money and approach money, to just try to make as much of it as we can at the lowest risk, because it does produce all of these other problems. I'm really instructed by the parable of the rich fool. Hmm. Um, that's one of my favorites while in a sort of <laughs> hard and convicting way, it's one of my favorites, <laughs> um, where this, this, this person who is later called a fool, um, has this incredible, uh, bounty of crops that the, the land produces abundantly is what the parable says, um, is what Jesus says in the parable, the land of this, this uh, person produces abundantly. And so he builds large larger and larger barns to store all the grain, this extra grain that he has. And uh, at the end of the parable, he's, he's called a fool. And in the end, God um, calls in the loan. That is the, the, the language in the Greek that doesn't come through so well in the English translation. God calls in the loan that is this man's life. And essentially the man is, he dies before he has any chance to enjoy sort of all of that extra grain and good that he stored up. And when I read the parable, what I read as foolish is his claim that it is all his. Because the language says the land produced abundantly, but um, throughout the parable, the man says it is my grain, my goods, and I'm going to store it up in my barns. And so he's sort of taken this ownership of what was really just on loan to him by God. We use that word stewardship in the church a lot, and we usually use it in reference to kind of giving at the end of the year to the fundraising campaign yeah fundraising campaign right and i mean okay that's fine but the idea of stewardship really is that we have been entrusted with resources to steward right so the way i think about what we have including our very lives is that they are on loan to us by god to be put to use in the world in some way on all the resources we have as well they're not ours to own in some kind of fundamental sense. We're stewards of them. They're ours to shepherd, to make use of. And so <clears throat> the idea that that the goal of our money or of our money-making decisions is just to make more of it for ourselves is fundamentally problematic, I believe. Mm-hmm. For my view, the goal of that money is to make the best good in the world that we can of it. And so if what we're trying to do is just generate maximum return at minimum risk, I don't think we're doing, I don't think we're being good stewards of that money. Ironically, because we often describe it in those terms, to be a good steward of that money is to make sure that it's still there many years later or that it's growing. Well, I actually think being good stewards of that money is to make sure that it's doing some good in the world.
1: As, as churches and other faith-based organizations have stewarded money of course many of them have accrued a lot of it and much of that has been placed in things like endowments or other similar funds can you talk a little bit about the incredible amount of wealth that exists even though there's a narrative of decline in the mainline church and a, a scarcity of resources
2: yeah I mean this is one of those things that so my my recent book we aren't broke the title we aren't broke is there intentionally because I'm trying to challenge this idea that we sort of have this scarcity mindset that we are broke. Um, There's lots of hand-wringing, we don't have much, we don't have enough anymore. And it is true, there's less money in some ways in the church in terms of giving and the offering plate. There's fewer members in many churches and therefore there's less giving. And so there's less kind of program money coming in. But actually I would argue that the church is wealthier now than it's ever been in human history. Hmm. There's um, trillions of dollars of uh invested assets and property in faith-based institutions around the world i mean you know you and i know princeton seminary well princeton Mm -hmm. seminary has more than a billion dollars in its endowment Mm -hmm. and its endowment i imagine grew enormously last year by by hundreds of millions of dollars in a single year there's a A huge a huge amount of money there um so when we say we don't have anything it's just not true um we aren't broke actually we have a lot not to mention all the property that we have Hmm. you know there's church property extremely valuable church property in every city in the country um and uh a lot of it's underutilized um the some of the statistics that i've heard is that church buildings are in use 12 percent of the week and that was pre-covid wow that's a, a pretty poor utilization rate of a valuable mm-hmm. asset, 12% of the week um, in use. And so we aren't broke. We have a lot of these assets and literally trillions. That's it with a T if it doesn't come through clearly in the <laughs> yeah. in the audio. A trillion. There's a lot of, of zeros after that. <laughs> it's a lot of zeros of money. And again, almost all of it is just at play in the financial system in order to make more of it. And hopes which is to a, live
1: off the interest.
2: Yeah, which is building bigger barns. For what? For what day? The day. I mean, what day are we waiting for <laughs> to use it and to put it to work?
1: Yeah. Earlier you asked the question, we're saving this all for what day? And it sounds to me like the, the argument you're making is we're, for today. For today. <laughs> Let's use some of it today
2: yeah there's no point in waiting. I don't think I mean what's what, what we're here to do today is to use our resources and I don't mean to use them frivolously or unwisely or wastefully um but to put them to work um you know they're still getting a return on their investment, but it's just a different level of return and uh and it's measured not just in pure dollars but also in impact
1: and one that feels like it has a lot of alignment and synergy with the kind of culture and ethos that faith-based organizations and churches and synods and um, want to have.
2: Yeah, I think to be honest with you, one of my greatest frustrations with this whole situation is that religious institutions are, for the most part, there's some exceptions um, way behind on this work. So there are many foundations that have moved to 100% impact, endowment mm-hmm. foundations most of the church foundations I'm aware of have less than 1% in their uh, in impact. Wow. Um, I'm not sure why it is because you would, as you note, we should be most aligned with these values, but I don't know if it's our conservative approach, our fear of failure, our fear of risk. I don't know what it is, but there's a tendency in the church to not be doing this work and to actually be far behind the curve. The exceptions are Catholic sister organizations. Many of them have a hundred percent of their, pension fund and invested in impact um, many of their endowments uh, none like uh, groups of nuns mm-hmm. um, are fully invested in impact they've been leading the way on this for 30 40 years mm-hmm. but most of the other institutions that I'm aware of especially in the mainline church um, are doing very little of it
1: I've got 10 more questions I want to ask you, but we probably only have time for a few more. I'm, I'm struck by a couple of things. Um, one is your simple encouragement toward the end of the book, start something somewhere. <laughs> so yeah. you've you field a lot of questions from people because of the work of Prez House. But I'm curious, what stories have you seen emerging as you've connected with others who are trying to start something somewhere that encourage you?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I I would always say that it's better to start something somewhere than not at all, right? (laughs) So, um, you know, we've seen some really interesting examples where churches are taking uh, a food pantry ministry, for example, that they've had beloved food pantry ministry for years and years and years, and looking at expanding it to be a a neighborhood-owned grocery store co-op. So they can really move the needle on f- on a food desert where there's not access to good healthy food as well as do it in a sustainable manner um, that uh, provides some income so that the project itself can run it might not make a lot of money but it will you know at least self-support or something like that um, there was a lot of m- lot of move in in some uh, churches pre-pandemic although I think this will emerge again um, hopefully soon around using empty space for co-working space um, to find a place for young professionals or others to come and uh, work at the church, literally have coffee and Wi-Fi and connect with each other and uh, meet people in a way that they wouldn't maybe show up for worship, but they might show up for that kind of, um,
1: yeah. it was more activity. people working remotely. That need might be greater now than. ever. Yeah, exactly.
2: On the investing side, you know, it's a matter of thinking and asking money managers and investment managers, um, endowment committees to just think differently about where that money is um, and what it's doing. Um, There are funds that people can invest in. I'm actually currently the president of the board of directors of a fund called Working Capital for Community Needs that was started by church folk about 35 years ago in the Madison area. Hmm. And we take investment from individuals, from churches, from institutions, and we lend it um, through intermediaries to the working poor throughout Latin America. We serve about 20,000 borrowers in Latin America who are using the capital of Americans to uh, purchase an oven so that they can make tortillas to sell and support their family. And uh, it's transformative. That money is at work literally every day in the lives of people changing their own lives uh, throughout Latin America. And so there are ways to take money out of the traditional investments, and invest it in funds like this. That fund, for example, has paid 100% back to investors in the entire lifetime of the fund. Hmm. So uh, while the financial returns might be a little bit lower, it's not particularly risky, and it uh, um, is a way, you know, it's just an example. That's just one example. There's lots of other options like that out there.
1: Yeah. You use the language of of finding ways to invest that are not extractive, but that are truly true investments. It seems to me that for you, this work is... Is work of justice
2: absolutely yeah Yeah, money i mean i think money fundamentally is is large is, is about justice and uh the idea of trying to generate highest returns at lowest risk often means that we're extracting that from somebody else so who's on the other side of the table if we're getting all that from from the deal getting lots of money low risk somebody on the other side of the table is giving us giving that money up um, or something oil out of the ground is is sort of creating that return that we are then e- extracting and if we're seeking it at low risk, somebody on the other side of the table is taking higher risk there's there's no sort of money doesn't come out of nowhere you know <laughs> there's mm-hmm. a there's a way in which what we're doing um, is always somehow extracting it from a system. And so for us to think about the justice that's uh, at play in, in those decisions means that we we need to think about who or what is on the other side of the table when we're, when we're re- receiving those returns. Yeah, I mean, Facebook can give a really high return because it's incredibly lucrative to have teenagers scrolling for hours and hours a day.
1: Yeah,
2: that's how that's how they can retur- give that kind of return.
1: Yeah, it's it's striking to to really stop and think about um, the lack of neutrality. Uh, with our money whether we're on the investor side or or any other part of that equation
2: mm-hmm. right that's right
1: it's interesting to me that in some way you've also resur- at Prez house you resurrected this old dream that had never come to life
2: uh-huh. right
1: and it's like i'm curious about this idea of like there was this 80 year old like oh yeah we should have student housing so in some ways it wasn't a new idea
2: Right. No, it wasn't. That's right.
1: It's like a really old, really dusty idea.
2: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It was there from the very beginning, actually.
1: Yeah, And I think that some people get this creativity freeze of like, well, we can think of a new thing. We've never tried it before. It has to be the most creative thing. And I'm like, well, in some ways, press houses in the middle of a campus, like student housing is not. No,
2: it's not. Exactly. That's totally right. It's not
1: bizarre. It's not a bizarre no, idea.
2: No. And I mean, that's one of the things I love about the stories of the food pantries. It's it's people taking a beloved old, often led literally by older people, yeah, um, idea, and then um, just remixing it, so to speak, into a different form. But it's still the same driving desire, right? Um, I think a lot of the churches that are doing affordable housing or senior housing it's similar they've they've for many many years cared about certain aspects of their neighborhood and this is a different way of addressing that
1: yeah
2: need but it isn't you're right they're not coming up with like you know they're not building a rocket ship to the moon or to <laughs> Mars or whatever, right. like with Elon Musk or whatever. You know, that's not the kind of innovation necessarily we're talking about. In
1: right. I mean, the food pantry is not a bad idea. You're no, trying no, to no, like no, help people who don't have Absolutely. enough
2: to eat. Absolutely, no, there's nothing, and 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 some aspect of that will be continued forward mm-hmm. in these new versions. But no, exactly, what you're doing is you're building upon the the passions, the desires, the interests, the experience, the skills of a congregation you know, in its own setting anyways, and just moving it in new directions, but you're not, it's not, I totally agree. It's not just sort of innovation out of thin air to something shiny and different for no reason, (laughs) just because it's shiny and different. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I wonder if that's also a way in like traditional congregations where there are a lot of older people who have this deep and abiding love for their churches where you're, you're honoring that if you are able to, to ground a new thing in the history in the story yes. Yes. to say it's not that any of that was bad you know um but to still be led into the future in a new way well i think that's a beautiful note to end on thank you so much for talking to me today mark
2: thank you it's great to talk to you
0: you've been listening to the distillery at princeton theological seminary interviews are conducted by me sushama austin connor and sherry osting our producer is brooke mateka like what you're hearing Subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. The Distillery is a production of the Office of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary. Find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening.